Good morning. My name's Tommy, and I'm the lead pastor here, and on behalf of our church and ambassadors and staff, I want to extend a welcome to you. You know, churches in Europe, back during the Reformation times, the, the front door was painted bright red, and some of those churches still have that physical characteristic, and it was just as a powerful reminder to people in a really uncertain and fearful age that you're about to walk into a building where things are different, not because of the physical location, but because of the perspective of what's going to go on in there. And it is you're about to, to be visible to God, and He cares for you, and He loves you, and He has done something radical and profound and deep and permanent to meet you where you're at in your deepest need, to put you right with Him, to reconcile you, to draw you, and I wish we, we could still do that. We can't here, obviously. We're limited. School wouldn't be happy if we threw some red paint on their front door. But what we do try uh, and challenge ourselves to do every week is to extend the welcome of God to you. Uh, the Bible says, welcome one another to the glory of God. And we try to do that. We want every single person that comes onto this campus, whether they're a stranger to God's grace or whether they've experienced some church hurt in their, in their background and history at some point and... They've been de-churched and they're, they're crawling back, really suspicious, and, or they've never, maybe they've never heard the gospel or even have a clue who Jesus Christ is and they found themselves here this morning. We want to extend God's welcome to them and not make them feel strange, but make them feel welcome. You know the word hospitality in Greek, it means the love of strangers, so we want to be hospitable here. And that's why every single week we extend this welcome. It's almost become a chant for us. But I say it every week, and people have started joining us when, when we say this. And you can if you want. To all who mourn and need comfort, to all who are weary and need rest, to all who feel worthless and wonder if God cares, He does. To all who fail and need strength, to all who sin and need a Savior, to all who hunger and thirst after righteousness, and to whoever else will come. Grace Life Church opens wide her doors in the name of Jesus Christ and offers welcome. So welcome. Welcome to church. Welcome to Grace Life. We're so thankful that you came here today, and I trust that God has brought everyone that He wanted to bring in His sovereign providence to be encouraged uh, by the message today, by the, by the lyrics, by the prayers, by the conversation, by the greeting. And if you have a smartphone, we're living in, in 2021, and we tell people who are watching from home, I want to extend the welcome to you as well. We have several people who each week tune in by live stream. We've kept that up for that reason. So those of you who are watching from home, welcome. Welcome to Grace Life. You're not here with us physically, but we're united in our spirit. And one of the things you can do, you can pull out your smartphone if you want to follow along with the scripture reading in your own way, and you can uh, snap a picture of that, and it'll pull up a link you can tap, and it will take you to our to a place on our website where you can do all kinds of cool stuff. So you can do that now, or you can just follow along. I'm going to be reading from the Old Testament today and from the New Testament. We have two passages. One of them is going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 23, if you want to find that. 1 Samuel chapter 23, and this is early in the life of David, and it's a very awkward time where David is transitioning to be the new king of Israel, but they're still an old king, Saul, and they're not friends. 
It's kind of a one-sided love relationship. David loves, respects, and obeys and honors him, and Saul can't stand David. He's jealous, he's envious, he's hateful, he's murderous. So I want to read this passage where the, there's almost a climax of hatred here. And then I'm going to read the New Testament that may tell us what was going on here. So chapter 23 of 1 Samuel, and we're going to start in verse uh, 15. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish, and Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horish, and Jonathan went home. It's just a really short passage in the Old Testament. Now you can flip over to the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. And I'll tell you a little bit later in the message why I'm, uh, why I'm putting both of these in here. One of the reasons is one is a demonstration and the other one is a commandment. The New Testament tells us to encourage one another. And the Old Testament passage gives us a really vivid illustration of what that might look like, what it did look like for David and Jonathan. So Hebrews 3, chapter, uh, verse 12 through 14, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, and that's just another word in Greek, exhort, for encourage. It's parakaleo, it means to call alongside somebody, using words, using your voice. Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Well, let's pray, and then I'm going to start my watch, okay? None of that counted. Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity to to come and, and worship you together, to be united in spirit. I pray you would remove every distraction that would take our eyes and our minds and our hearts away from what you're seeking to teach us today. Even if I'm a distraction, remove me, Lord. Get me out of the way. Help me to just be your messenger. Hide me behind the message. Hide me behind the cross. We want Christ to be exalted. We want to honor you today, Lord. You're the reason that we're here. Don't let us get lost in, in any other detail other than we're here to, to see God, to find God, to, to, to receive help and encouragement from God. I pray that you would do that in a powerful way today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. It's been a, it's been a pretty strange month, hasn't it? Oh man, everybody's quiet today. This is going to be one of those crowds. Okay, all right. <laughs> um, it has been a really strange month, and I think a lot of people feel an excess, but, but maybe in a strange way. We feel, the word over has been used a lot to describe people this month as I've talked to them. They feel overwhelmed. They feel overextended. They feel overworked. Some people may feel overweight. I don't know. There's lots of, the, the word over has been used a lot. 
But here's, here's a way I have not u- heard the word overused. Nobody has told me that they feel over-encouraged. In fact, I don't, I don't know that I've ever felt that. Have you ever felt like, man, I just can't stand it. No more. Please, cut it off. You're, you're, you're killing me. <laughs> I, I, I've never experienced that, and I have not heard that. When's the last time you ever heard somebody complain that they're just getting too much encouragement? They can't handle it. It's usually the opposite, especially this cultural moment. I just looked at, at some headlines last night. Dixie Wildfire in California. Do you know that it has been burning for over a month and over half a million acres have been consumed already? And that's just one of the larger fires. Um, there's actually 100 wildfires burning right now in the West in 14 different states. If you're like me and rarely watch the news, I commend that to you. That's kind of a shock. You're like, oh, wow, the world's on fire. I didn't know. I didn't know. I didn't know I need to be praying about that. Earthquake. Earthquake in Haiti, 7.2 in magnitude, killed three, 400 people. That just happened. Taliban in Afghanistan. You know, they're days. They're just days from overtaking the capital. They're, they're sending out and evacuating people left and right. The U.S. Embassy is in danger. Only a few key strategic people are going to stay there. That's major news. Major news. There's a COVID surge again. You guys knew this already, right? You said, Pastor, we came to hear good news. I know, I'm getting there. There's, there's, we got to set the context. This is the cultural moment that we're living in. COVID surge again, hospitals are filling up, people are dying, and now people are debating over vaccinations and mask mandates, and no, I'm not going to comment on that. You're all grown up and adults, and I'm sure you, you have an opinion, and sometimes opinions are like armpits, aren't they? Everybody has one, and they don't smell so good. <laughs> so you didn't come here for an opinion, uh, but I'm just, I'm noting the fact that, man, there's, there's a lot of uh, people are, are in angst right now and, and divided. There's, it's not a real beautiful time of unity in our nation. There's two tropical storms headed for Florida. One is named Fred. We may encounter some rain today. And the other one's named Grace. I'll take Grace. What do you think? Does Grace sound better than Fred to you? Anybody that names Fred in here, no offense. Um, and the world may be headed into lockdown again. So just FYI about all that stuff. By the way, can I say this? That's end of the world stuff. Does that not sound like I just read a chapter out of the book of Revelation? Wars, rumors of wars, the love of many will grow cold. There will be earthquakes. There will be cataclysmic shifts, climate stuff going on. The world shakes. The sun will turn to blood. I mean, not literally, just, you know, it'll be darkened. It's, it sounds like it's apocalyptic. And in some ways it is. There's an unveiling going on of what humans are really made of. We're not doing so well. We really need help. We need God's help, and we need one another's help. I think fear and pessimism had taken hold of people's hearts. Everyone's suspicious. Trust is gone. People now are talking to each other in memes. Seriously. It's like bumper sticker. How well do bumper stickers communicate? Have you ever been convinced by a bumper sticker? Have you? No? I love memes, but the, the memes going around now are angry. They're ugly. They're divisive or divisive if you're proper. It's a really nasty time right now. The, the glass is half empty for pretty much everyone. But I want you to know that, that we're not alone. And this is, there's no new evil under the sun. And lots of people have felt discouraged throughout history, and we see that in the Bible. Thank God that the Bible speaks to where we're at, right? It's relevant. It's the most relevant document in the, in the history of the world. We think we analyze the Bible. The Bible analyzes you. 
We think we read the Bible, it reads us and tells us how we should think about life, how life is, how it looks, how it really is, and what to do about it. And I think there's a crisis of encouragement in our day. We don't give it well, and we don't receive it well. It's really rare. It's like a precious jewel. It's like a unicorn. You can't hardly find it these days. People are mostly pessimistic and angry. We all need help. That's, that's part of being human. Fake it till you make it. Just, just, it doesn't work. And it doesn't work in here either. This is the last place in the world that that works. Needing help is simply part of being human. But we're Americans. We're fixers. You know? We, we, we shrug off people's offers to encourage us and help us. We'll fix this. But you can't fix yourself and you can't escape yourself. We need encouragement. So the sermon today is a simple outline. We just got, I got four points that I want to make and then we'll be on our way, okay? And I'm going to make the points from this passage in the Old Testament and from some other places. And we're talking about encouragement. So here's point number one. I've kind of already made some of that. Pay attention because everyone around you needs encouragement. I will guarantee you, I will stake my life on it, that there's somebody in your life right now that you know they may or may not be close to you. They may or may not be called a friend. They need encouragement. And God means for you to be the source of it. And, and we're going to miss it if we don't pay attention. There's a really tragic story just about every time somebody takes their life. And it's like all these signs were there and we didn't pick up on them. And sometimes we can't. We're not God. We can't discern things people don't share and, and don't exhibit and don't speak to us about. But so often we don't pay attention. People are genuinely discouraged. And you see, Jonathan paid attention here. He knew his friend David. He knew where he was. He knew what he needed. That's point one. We'll go back to it. Point two is take the risk because encouragement is going to cost you. If you're going to really and sincerely and biblically encourage somebody, it's going to cost you. you may be, it may cost you the person that you're trying to encourage. They may accost you. They may misunderstand you. They may injure you like a, rescue, a pet that's stuck in a tree that claws you. They don't know what you're doing. You're trying to help. But there's a cost to it. Number three, aim well. If you're going to encourage somebody, you're going to have to use words, and you're going to have to choose them carefully. And you're going to have to understand the words that your friend or your enemy, whoever you're encouraging, needs. Jonathan did that. And the fourth one is take them to God. Only he can truly help them. You and I are very poor saviors. We're great friends. We're terrible saviors. We're nobody's refuge. We're nobody's rock. We put their hand in God's hand. In Greek, or excuse me, in Hebrew, that's literally what it means. He strengthened his hand in God. David, David's hand was, he had let go of God. I mean, God never let go of him. But in a sense, David felt alone. And Jonathan came and took David's hand and took God's hand, like the father on the wedding day, right? And he joined them together, and then Jonathan bowed out. It's really quick and easy, a short paragraph. But man, what a difference it made. So that's our outline. Point number one, pay attention. Everybody needs encouragement. Hey, David was a godly man. He was humble. He was a strong leader. He was faithful. He was courageous. He was anointed king. He had all these amazing promises from God. He wrote most of the book of Psalms, at least half. And David was discouraged. Are you surprised to read that? Does that encourage you? <laughs> Let me encourage you by telling you that godly people get discouraged. I don't know about you. That encouraged me. It's almost like, okay, misery desires company, and now I have it. Lots of godly people were distressed and discouraged, and we need to know that. God wants us to know it because he put it in the Bible, and all Scripture is profitable. Some godly men were discouraged. John the Baptist, Jesus said, there was not born to a woman a greater man than John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was sitting in prison 
filled with doubt and angst. So much so that he sent a messenger to Jesus and he said, are you really the Messiah or should I look for somebody else? And Jesus sent word to him to encourage him. And he said, hey, look at all these miracles, man. The, li- the lame walk, the blind see, the dead are raised to life, and blessed is he who's not offended by me. In other words, yeah, John, hang in there, buddy. We'll get there. Everybody's discouraged, but we find in this passage a surprise. We find a Jonathan. Now, I know we all want to be Davids, but sometimes God just wants us to be a Jonathan. You know, Jonathan encouraged his friend, and I, I'm not trying to be morbid, but Jonathan encouraged his friend, and then he went and died. Just a few chapters later, Jonathan's gone. In fact, these are the last recorded words of Jonathan to his friend. You never know, do you? You never know, man, the last word you say to, to somebody, how they're going to impact him, them or if that's the last opportunity you have. Jonathan's name means Yahweh's gift or the Lord has given. I like that. I want to be a gift to somebody. So often I feel like I'm a burden. <laughs> you ever feel like that? You, have you ever noticed? Now, I'm a pastor, and maybe it's a little different. But, but seriously, I'm out in public, and some people know I'm a pastor. I've given out so many of those Grace Life cards, I'm obnoxious to people at Publix. They don't even make eye contact anymore. But there's times I'm out, and I'll see. <laughs> I'm just keeping it real, man. I'll be out, and I'll be walking down the aisle in Publix, and I'll kind of see somebody go like this. And I'll see them go around the corner. I'm like, that was, and then I'll go down to the refrigeration aisle, and they like, <laughs> and I'm like, okay, I get it. I'm not offended. I get it. I understand. They're in sin. No. <laughs> I don't want to be, I don't want to, be the darkness that comes into the room. I want to be the light that fills the room. I want, to, I want to radiate the love of Christ to people and encourage them. I want to pay attention. You know, this is a really, if you're not that familiar with the Old Testament, please don't feel bad. I'm going to fill you in, okay? David was God's choice to be the next king of Israel. Saul had failed colossally. He, he, it was colossal failure. He didn't do what God called him to do, so God brought David and anointed him to be king, and David demonstrated his courage and his competence and his anointing by, remember the act that he did in front of all of Israel? What was it? He slaughtered Goliath. He slayed the giant, cut his head off, rescued Israel. Everyone knew this is God's chosen man. Even Saul knew that. And that's like the, the, the peak of, of excitement. Chapter 17, 1 Samuel, and it takes five verses for things to tank really fast. Because before you know it, Saul is envious of David. He's got his eye on him, and he says he continually became David's enemy. But David's clueless. He has no idea. And it's a really, for, for about 10 chapters, this is the most interesting 10 chapters, I think, in the Bible, in the Old Testament. David is literally running for his life, and Saul is after him. Saul's satanic. He's filled with an, with a, 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 an unclean spirit that torments him. I mean, it's almost, it almost reads like a Halloween story. You know, Saul's trying to kill David. He throws a spear at him when David's playing his harp, trying to, to, to calm the king. That was what he initially commissioned David to do, play the harp and relax him. And an unclean, a, a tormenting spirit comes upon Saul, and he becomes ravenously, murderously envious and tries to throw a spear and kill David. He's searching for David. He can't find him, so instead he interrogates all the people that David has been with. And one of them happens to be a priest, a Hemelik. And Saul calls for that priest and all of his followers, 85 priests in total. 
And because they help David, he slaughters all 85 of them. Now, now just think of that. Is that not psychotic and sociopathic? He would have a Netflix documentary if he were alive or if he were around today, wouldn't he? He slaughtered 85 priests, and then he went to the town they lived in called Nob or Nob, and he slaughtered their wives, their children, their cattle. He, like, leveled the whole city. So that's the kind of crazy we're dealing with here. That's the king. David is the most wanted man in Israel, and it's not a good kind of want, if you know what I mean. Saul is after him. He's offering rewards to people that will help him find them. He's threatening people that become obstacles to him finding him. David is on the run for his life. He's alone. He's by himself. He's afraid. He's probably confused. He's angry. He's probably paranoid. He doesn't know who to trust. That sounds a lot like America 2021, doesn't it? You're like, well, no, it doesn't. Yeah, it does. It does. I've never met more people that feel isolated and alone than I have this year, even though they're surrounded by people. It's kind of like the social media riddle, isn't it? I'm connected, but I'm, I'm alone. Got all these followers, but I'm alone. We're alone. We're just alone together. I mean, we're together here, but probably some of you feel alone, like you don't really have a friend, which means you don't have any encouragement, which means you're in trouble. So Saul is coming, your enemies are seeking you, you're going to be betrayed by the ones that you serve, and David had been over and over, but you have this friend named Jonathan. And three different times we're told in the narrative around this chapter 23, starting at 18, that Saul and Jonathan were one-souled in Hebrew, one soul. Their soul became as one. And do you know what, people who don't understand biblical friendship, do you know what they say about Jonathan? And David, what do they say? It's okay, you can say it out loud. They say, well, they, clearly they were homosexual. No, clearly they weren't. They weren't homosexual. That's just friendship. That's how far we've drifted today. We think, well, two guys can't be that close. Why can't they be? <laughs> this is how God intended for human beings to be. Together. To have a friend. I meet with people all the time both in counseling and just out and about, trying to encourage them, trying to help them. And I always ask one question that's so revealing. Because sometimes people will share things with the pastor they won't share with anybody. And sometimes they won't share anything <laughs> with the pastor. That's why I try to break the ice and introduce humor when I talk to people. But anyway, the question I ask is, hey, is there anybody else in your life that you can talk with like this, like we're doing, that you can share your issues with? 90% of the time, you know what they say? Nobody. I don't have anybody. And they're not a hermit, you know? They're not living by themselves. They're not a recluse. There's people all around them, but they just don't have a, a true friend, which means there's no steady source of encouragement for them. And that's a, made, that's a big problem. There's a, uh, there's a guy I follow on Twitter. His name's Gavin Ortland, and I found this tweet just a few weeks ago. Can you guys see that? He said, when I practice deliberate encouragement to others, it's amazing how often someone says, this came at exactly the right time, or I really needed that today. He says, I've concluded that people are walking around needing encouragement like 80% of the time. Good to remember this. Anybody relate to that? You ever shared encouragement with somebody? And it's almost as if you went to somebody in the middle of the Sahara Desert that had been without food and water for a week, and you gave them a glass of cold water and... A rack of ribs, I don't know, whatever. You're like, dude, I had no, I had no idea. I just, your, your name, the burden, 
God burdened me today with you. thought maybe you could use this. You know, Jesus, now I speak as a man. This, make, this rattles people. Jesus in the garden, the night of his arrest, do you know what he did? Check this out, the scripture. Here's what it says. Then Jesus went with them, his 12 disciples, to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that is James and John. So Jesus took his 12 disciples and he said, you stay there. And he said, Peter, James, John, you come with me. I need you. His three best friends. Yes, Jesus had best friends, three of them, Peter, James, and John. And look what he said. He began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here with me and watch with me. You know what Jesus said? I'm agonizing right now. I need encouragement. Sit with me. Watch with me. Pray. That wasn't sinful for Jesus. Don't think of Jesus as if he, oh, Jesus is all needy. And No, Jesus is a human being. Seeking, seeking encouragement is not part of the fall. It's part of being human. <laughs> That's what the Garden of Eden was like before sin came. They walked with God in the cool of the day and they encouraged. They were encouraged. And by the way, did Jesus get what he sought there? No. He had no encouragement. We'll come back to that. So if Jesus sought encouragement... David sought encouragement. Job needed encouragement from his friends. He didn't get it. Pay attention. If you pay attention, you're going to find people around you that need encouragement. So often we're so absorbed with our own troubles. I am too. I'm including myself. People become invisible to me. I have that problem. I'm serious. Sometimes it's out of sight, out of mind with me. It's a terrible, it's a terrible problem that I pray God rescues me from. Seeking and giving, giving encouragement as part of being human. Have you ever heard of a blue zone? How many people in here have heard of a blue zone? There's six blue zones in the world. And those are places, I think we have a slide for that, Matt. Those are places in the world where people live exceptionally long lives. Yes, I want to go there. No, this is not a blue zone that we're in, okay? This is probably a red zone. <laughs> red zone. That's not a political statement either, guys, okay? <laughs> There's six blue zones. The most astonishing one is an island in Italy called Sardinia. Sardinia. I want to live there. People on that island are, uh, oh man, what's the word for it? What's the word for when you live to be 100? Help me out here. Centenarians. They have per capita 10 times more centenarians than any other place in the United States. So when that kind of thing happens... That, that sets off the radars and the antennas of researchers. So all these researchers are like, what? They found the fountain of youth. So they pack up, they go there, and they live for, for a long time, and they study all these old people on the island of Sardinia. And, and Sardinia houses these villages um, where people have a very traditional culture that they've protected. It's an island, so it's protected, and all the people there are Italian, so their DNA is, and their genetics are protected, so it's the same people living in the same place with the same habits, the same lifestyle, the same rhythms. And you can, you can, you can almost guess what, what they discovered when they were there, right? These people, they drink wine every day, the good artery-scrubbing kind of wine, apparently. They drink goat's milk. Gross. <laughs> 
They have an incredible sense of humor. They respect their elders. The families live together, sometimes three, four, because they live to be 100. Sometimes four or five generations live together. They take walks every day, sometimes up to five miles. A lot of the people there, their occupation is their shepherds. They eat a very clean, healthy diet. They grow their own gardens. Uh, it's a no-nonsense no kind of lifestyle, and they've preserved it for years. And so these researchers have said, okay, drink this kind of wine, drink this kind of goat's milk, take a walk. That's what we try to reduce things. But you know what I've discovered is I've read, and I don't know, I'm just a curious person. I've read this over and over. You know what's there that you don't find a lot of other places? Healthy, nourished relationships. Everything those people do, they do it together. They drink wine, sure they do. But they do it together. They take walks every day. They do. You know what we would do? Great, I'm going to go to Lake Bearsford and walk two miles by myself. You've missed the whole point then. Because everything they do on that island, they do together. Together. That's what Americans are so lacking in, I think. We're so isolated. We're so curved in and turned into ourselves. We're so ingrown. And that's, that's, that can become very toxic. And it can happen to people in marriages with lots of kids that from the outside, you're like, man, they've got encouragement. I wish I was them. And sometimes we have no clue. Sometimes they're the ones that feel the most trapped. Acts chapter 2 is an amazing description of the first church. And it says, they devoted themselves steadfastly to the apostles' doctrine and teaching to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and of prayers. And it said they were all together and they had all things in common and no one, no one went without. Everyone's needs were met. And then it says this, and they had favor with all the people. Why was that? Because that kind of lifestyle is attractive. The message that creates it's offensive to people. The gospel is offensive. We know that. But that lifestyle is attractive. It's like a garden. So Sardinia is like a, a Garden of Eden, but without God. You know, I don't know if they're religious there or not. That never came up. But isn't that interesting? I bet there's not a lot of discouraged people on that island. They say the men of Sardinia have a sardonic sense of humor. That means they're, they mock each other. They, it says they laugh with each other and at each other. So they don't take themselves too serious. They're not offended at every little thing because they're good friends. Some of them have been friends for 60, 70 years. Can you imagine how well you would know somebody? Anyway, enough about Sardinia. I think the church ought to be a blue zone, guys. That's what I'm saying. Why do we look at something like that and say, man, I want to go there? This should be. <laughs> this should, people ought to look at what we have in the body of Christ and in our community groups and in our little DNA fight club, discipleship groups, and they ought to say, man, I wish I had that. And we can hear that and say, you can. Do you, do you want to know how you can have that? We, the one thing we have in common is Christ. But so often people look at the church and they're like, man, I'm glad I'm, glad I'm not in there. They're like suing each other over a decision over what color the carpet's going to be. Or some third or fourth, fourth tier point in their theology they can't even agree on and they're killing each other. The church ought to be a blue zone. There ought to be a beauty to this place that makes people want to go there. It ought to be the good life. Here's a, a quote I found in a, in a magazine not too long ago. It said, only... Only around half of Americans say they have meaningful, daily, face-to-face -face social interactions. Only 50% of, of Americans say they have daily, face-to-face -face social encounters. What does that tell you that most Americans are? Lonely. They're very lonely. They don't have a Jonathan. They don't have a David. They don't have anything. Public health experts tell us that 
Loneliness is killing just as many people as obesity and smoking. Half of Americans, that means they're not seen, they're not heard, and they're not known. Guys, we, weren't, we were not made to live alone in isolation. The Bible, one of the first things the Bible says is not good is what? It's not good for man or woman to be alone. We need encouragement. John Piper said this, Christian friendships and small groups exist for this reason, to say things that keep each other believing. You will not make it in life without friends. I think I can say that on good authority. We think we make our friends, but our friends make us really, don't they? I used to hear that in school, show me your friends, I'll show you your future, and I used to laugh at it. Turns out it's true. It's true. One of the real predictors of a flourishing life is who you do it with. Meaning, what kind of encouragement are you getting? Well, God's invisible grace became visible when he sent Jonathan, the gift of Yahweh. They had a deep and they had an abiding friendship. So what did he do? What did he say to Jonathan? This is what he said. He rose, he went to David at Horish, and he strengthened his hand in God, and he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. And David remained there, and Jonathan went home. This is an Ed Welch quote that, that may encourage you. So often we feel like, man, I've got to call in. I've got to call somebody who's specially who's trained for encouragement and for counsel. And look, you're not going to get any argument from me about needing specialized or professional counseling. I'm a firm believer in that. I think you need to be really careful, careful who you seek it from. There are good Christian counselors out there, and I can help connect you to them. So I'm not disparaging that. But here's what an interesting thing that Ed Welch said. God is pleased to use ordinary people, ordinary conversations, and extraordinary and wise love to do most of the heavy lifting in his kingdom. In our era, we consult experts, consult experts, and Ed Welch is an expert, by the way, so I found this even more powerful. We consult experts, professionals, and specialists, but when you look at your own history of having been helped, it's likely that you'll notice very few experts among those who have helped you. Who were your, who were your helpers? Were they professional counselors or specialists? Probably not. Most often, they were friends. The regular, everyday people in your life, friends are the best helpers. It's true, they are. Friends are the best helpers. So pay attention. And here's point number two. We're going to skip forward here. Point number two is take a risk. Take a risk. It will cost you to provide encouragement. Do you guys know the backstory with Jonathan? Once Saul found out that his son, Jonathan, it's interesting how they point out in this narrative. Uh, you can skip past that. It, it's interesting they point out in this narrative that Jonathan was Saul's son. He was Saul's son. Why do they say that? Because Saul would not be happy about this. In fact, did you know that Saul had tried to kill Jonathan for encouraging David? He threw a spear at his own son. I'm telling you, the guy's psychotic. He's demon-possessed. Maybe he's possessed by Satan. We don't know. It's a, people have said that Saul in the Old Testament is a picture of the Antichrist. Because he's so filled with hate and trying to... 
hinder and oppose God's purposes and God's plan. So Jonathan would have gone to David at considerable risk, but he did it anyway. Why? Because David was his friend and he needed him, and David didn't have anybody else. He had a lot of men that were with him, but they were all discouraged too. David attracted all these discouraged men, hundreds of them, but none of them were encouraging him. He was all alone. He, he really needed his friend. And I'm not going to get into all the ge- geography of how long and how far. It was a risk in so many ways for Jonathan to go to David. It cost him. And you know, true friendship does cost us, doesn't it? Encouraging somebody is not going to come easy and it's not going to come cheap because it's a form of love. This is what C.S. Lewis said. Check this quote out. To love at all is to be vulnerable. That's what Jonathan did. He became vulnerable. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. It's true. It's true. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was one of the only theologians and pastors in Germany who was opposing Hitler, he said this. He He was martyred. He was hung later, but he said this. If the fellowship of the cross... It is the fellowship of the cross to experience the burden of the other. If one does not experience it, the fellowship he belongs to is not Christian. If any member refused to bear that burden, he denies the law of Christ. Those are strong words, aren't they? He's saying it is a burden to become an encouragement to somebody, but it's a burden we should gladly and joyfully bear because of what Christ has done for us. That's where we get the courage. That's where we get the strength. That's where we get our resources. So that's point two. And here's the third point. Aim well. Aim well. What do I mean by that? Jonathan knew his friend, and he knew what David was struggling with the most. What was it? David was what? He was afraid. He was fearful. David had forgotten all of God's promises, and Jonathan reminded him. See, guys, words are powerful. Proverbs 18.21 says, The power of life and death reside in the tongue. That is some weapon you got in your mouth. We can talk about gun control and, and rights and privileges and responsibilities. This weapon you have in your mouth is, is, has potentially... Ah, that's probably not going to make sense, does it? <laughs> you have some, a powerful weapon in your mouth that you can be used for good or for evil. Just like any dangerous weapon can, right? And Jonathan used it for good. He aimed... Very strategically, he knew exactly what to say to David and what not to say. What did he say? Look at it again. He said to him, do not fear. Man, that's a, if you just read the Bible straight through and do a control F search, you're going to find that hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times because that's our default mode as human beings, isn't it? We're afraid. Jesus had to tell his disciples over and over and over, do not be afraid. But I love the fact that that's not all Jesus said, and that's not all Jonathan said. He says, you don't have any reason to be afraid, bro. God gave you a promise. He promised you, you're going to sit on the throne of Israel. You're going to lead Israel for many years. You're going to live a long, flourishing, healthy life. God made that promise to you. God doesn't lie. God doesn't exaggerate. God doesn't embellish. 
David had forgotten those promises and he was, it had dramatically impacted his life negatively. And Jonathan knew he needs to be reminded. What do your friends around you need to be reminded of? What promise have they forgotten? Probably some of the same ones we forget. So he told him, he said, do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. Man, wasn't that a cup of cold water to David? He said, David, you're out here hiding. I get it. I understand. You're afraid. Don't be afraid. Saul's not going to find you. There's this whole motif, uh, if you're a Hebrew nerd and you're reading this chapter, of the hand of God and the hand of Saul and the hand of David and the hand of Jonathan. And it says over and over, Saul's hand was seeking David, but the hand of God would not allow Saul to find David. And then it's interesting that Jonathan came, and what did he do? He strengthened, he strengthened David's hand in the Lord. He joined David's hand to God's hand, and he said, you're in good hands, better than all state customers, all right? Words are powerful. Jonathan didn't preach a sermon to David. He didn't go rent an Airbnb for him. It was just a few words that he said, and they made a covenant together. I'm sure they prayed. This was a very brief encounter. And I think sometimes when we think, I've got to encourage somebody, you think you've got to preach a sermon, you think you've got to have a script, sometimes it's just a, a few short words you say to somebody that can change their life, can rescue them from anxiety. Listen to these Listen to these scriptures in Hebrew. Proverbs 12, 25. Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. Just a good word. Has anybody ever said a good word to you that made you glad when you were anxious? Weren't you grateful for that? Here's another one. A word fitly spoken. See, aimed well. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. And then Proverbs 16, it says, Gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. Gracious words, a word fitly spoken, a glad word, aim well, aim well, pay attention. What do your friends need to be reminded of today? You know, Martin Luther, the reformer, had a friend who was really anxious. His name was Philip Melanchthon. And Martin Luther would always encourage Philip Melanchthon with these words. He would say, come, let us sing the 46th Psalm and let the devil do his worst. And that would always lift Melanchthon spirits. Luther was his friend and he knew him. He could tell when he was anxious, when he was sad, when he was scared. Most of the time he was scared for Luther that Luther was going to get killed. But that never happened. Words are powerful. I had a story I was going to tell. I'll, I'll, I will. It'll be short. When I was a senior in high school, uh, this robo quarterback named Todd Marinovich, he, he started as a freshman for California, for USC. And he was drafted into the NFL and he played for the Oakland Raiders. And his first major NFL game was a big deal. And there's a backstory to this. Todd Marinovich's dad was the strength coach for the Oakland Raiders. And he turned his little kid into an experiment. He said, I'm going to create the perfect quarterback. And Todd tells the story, even before he could walk, his dad would take him down to the stadium in Oakland to make him crawl 100 yards. This kid had no life, really. He was, he was just a... a test tube for his dad. And his dad was like very harsh, very demeaning. His son was like an object. He wasn't like a real person. He, he withheld love from him. He punished him. He had this regimented diet. His son couldn't, couldn't drink, he could, which is probably a good thing, right, when you're a kid. <laughs> he couldn't eat Oreos. He never had a Big Mac. He never ate fast food. He couldn't have sugar. He couldn't date. I mean, there was all kinds of crazy things that this dad held his kid to. And his kid ended up resenting his dad later. That's another 
sermon illustration for another day, but this big game, Oakland Raiders, New York Giants, they played them at home. They were down 10 to nothing at halftime, and Todd Marinovich came back, and he played the greatest statistical game in his career. He threw for 216 yards. They came back. They won. And after that game, his father rushed the field and embraced his son for the first time and expressed his love for him. And he said these words. He said, Todd, you have exceeded my wildest expectations as a parent for you as a human and as a quarterback. I'm so proud of you, son. I love you. And Todd, man, I'll cry saying this. And Todd Marinovich said something snapped that he never wanted to play football again because his entire life, that's all he ever wanted to hear. He didn't even like football. How about that? <laughs> he said, I hated football, but I was good at it. And I did it to please my dad. And when my dad finally said, I'm proud of you, son, I love you, he said, I didn't want to play anymore. I don't care about money. I don't care about fame. And he didn't. In fact, his life was ended up getting wrecked about that time because he was snorting cocaine. And any, Long story, I don't want to complicate it, but words are powerful, aren't they? Aren't they? You have to wait your entire life to hear I love you, I'm proud of you. Oh, my word. And look, there's people that are Todd Marinovich's right now living their life. They've never heard that. They've never heard it from God and Christ, and they've never heard it from their friends about God. <laughs> That's a sad, lonely life, man. Corey Ten Boom, she said this. She said, look without, excuse me, look within and be depressed. Look without and be distressed. Look to Christ and be at rest. This is just an Old Testament picture of what Jonathan did for his friend. Is he's saying, hey, bro, I know things look terrible right now. You're in the middle of the desert. My father's trying to kill you. And I love the way he didn't sugarcoat it. He didn't say, no, Saul loves you. Don't do that. <laughs> don't sugarcoat your friend. Don't be naive. They already know that. He said, yeah, my, my dad's trying to kill you, but he's not going to find you. <laughs> he's not going to find you. He said, look up, man. Look up. God loves you, David. You're the apple of his eye. You're his anointed. You're going to be king. Psalm 138, verse 8, says, The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. David wrote this psalm. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. That's the one, one of the psalms. We don't know when it was written. I got to think, man, it came out of that conversation with Jonathan. Don't you? It's like, hey, David, God has a purpose for you. He's going to fulfill it. His steadfast love is going to preserve you. Amazing. Here's another point built into that point. Um, well, no, this is just the fourth point. Take them to God. Take them to God. We are poor saviors for people. I love the fact that Jonathan has said, David, we're going to work this out together, man. I'm going to be here. I'm going to be your strength. I'm going to be your help. We can't do that. Sometimes people do that, and then, and then we become codependent, don't we? Jonathan said, hey, there's God. I'm going to connect you to God, then I'm going to bow out. I'm going to excuse myself. Because guess what? Jonathan's about to go die. He ain't going to be around very much longer. He returns to Gibeah, never to see David again. We can't bear the full burden. The Bible says, cast all your anxieties on God, for he will care for you. We just need to help people do that. We can help them send that burden up to God. He comforted his friend, then he went home. Now, we're closing out here. I want to show you something really interesting, okay? Something really interesting. 
See, I used to think that this was a turning point for David, and in some ways it is because I think Jonathan taught him how to do something really important and critical that Christians forget. He taught him how to look to God in your trouble, turn your eyes up. But things tanked again right after this for David. He starts doing crazy. In fact, these 10 chapters, David is at his worst. I mean, it's like you almost can't recognize him. This is the guy that, that killed bears and lions to protect the sheep. He slaughtered a giant. Then David starts, starts tanking. He's unrecognizable. He's telling lies to the priest, pretending to be on some secret mission that he's not just so he can get bread and eat. He goes to the pagan Philistine city to King Achish, and he pretends that he's mad, that he's crazy. He starts slobbering on his beard because why? He's afraid. He's doing all kinds of crazy things. He's undignified. This is like not the David we know. But then Jonathan comes and strengthens his hand. And then David forgets again. He needs another reminder. But check this out. This is in chapter 30. If you have a Bible, turn to chapter 30 in 1 Samuel. We're going to close with this. David's with his men. He's going back to a city that he lived in called Ziklag. And when he gets there, he's been traveling for 25 miles a day with 400 Hebrews. They're tired. They're Have you ever been on a long trip and when you, you just could not wait to get home? Even though we have modern luxuries, airplanes, Airbnbs, you know, we have minivans with uh, DVD players, we're still exhausted. Imagine living in the ancient Middle East and traveling by foot in the desert 25 miles a day. You're exhausted and you finally get home. You can't wait for the comforts of home, but instead you find the whole town has been burned to the ground. And your wife and your children and your herds, your cattle, everything's missing. You have no idea where they are, if they're even alive. How discouraged would you be? So here we are. Let me read this. When David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. Yeah, I would too. David's two wives also had been taken captive. Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed. So he's right back where he, he was before, isn't he? He's distressed, he's discouraged, he's sad, confused. For the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter and so, each for his sons and daughters. And you know what? I would have been tempted to say, go ahead, there's a big rock right there, put me out of my misery. But you know what? David did something really powerful and really interesting. Look at this. But David strengthened himself in the Lord as God. Oh, where'd he learn that? Where'd he learn that? Who taught him to do that? His friend Jonathan did. See, when you connect somebody to God, it's, it's, it's the old saying, give a man a fish. How's that go? I always forget it. That's right. I'm just making sure y'all were awake. <laughs> he... David was taught how to fish by his friend Jonathan. See, Jonathan's dead at this point chronologically. I mean, we learned that the next chapter, but chronologically, he's dead. He can't help his friend. Oh, no, my rock, my refuge is gone. What am I going to do? No, 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 I know what to do. I'm going to strengthen my own hand in God. I'm going to look to God. And that's the same word in Hebrew for strengthen here as we find in chapter 23. And I just love that, man. That's a beautiful ending. A weak faith can lay hold of a strong Christ. That's what Jonathan had taught David, and that's what David did. David learned something. So we're going to close with that, but I, but I, but I, want, to, I want to close with pointing you to Jesus. Jonathan was able to leave his friend 
Why? Because God stayed. God was there. God never left David. And the Bible says God will never leave us. He's not going to leave us orphans. I will be with you. Behold, I'll be with you even to the end of the age. But how's that true? How can God do that? How can He make such a radical promise to us? Because God left Jesus. (laughs) You know that on the cross? God abandoned His Son. You know, we read David, he had his hand joined to God's by Jonathan, like this wedding, and they were joined and linked. But you know what happened on the cross? Jesus had hold of His Father's hand, and for the first time and the last time in the history of time, Jesus, the relationship was severed. And he was on his own completely. He had no encouragement. Jesus had no encouragement from his friends, from his people, from his father. Utterly and completely alone. And because of that, you and I will never, we will never have to face discouragement from God's absence. We may feel like God's not there, but that's only a feeling and we can't always trust our feelings. God has made those promises to us. We'll never have to look at the backside of God again because he's never walking away. No matter what you've done, no matter who you are. Jesus is with you and Jesus is for you. Psalm, Psalm 56, 9 says this. David wrote this. This I know that God is for me. Isn't that powerful? Do you know that today? Do you know that because of what Jesus did and your trust and your faith in him and you turning from your sins, God is for you and God will never be against you. That's what Paul said in Romans. We're going to get there eventually. If God be for you, who can be against you? We need to, we need to wrestle we need to argue with ourselves sometimes. When our Jonathans are gone, that's, what, that's how you strengthen your hand in God. If God be for me, who can be against me? Nobody can. I've got all these enemies, but they're puny compared to God. He's with me. He's for me. He's accepted me. He died for me when I was without strength, when I was his enemy. He's not going to abandon me now. If he didn't abandon me on the cross, he's not going to abandon me in my darkest hour. That's the gospel. That's the promise. That's the pledge we have. Praise God for that. I need that. I need that reminder every single day. And I'm, I'm going to guess that you do too. And I'm going to guess that we all know people who need it that maybe aren't as far along. So go find those people. Pay attention. Take the risk. And I forgot the other two points, but let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your grace and for the way that you encourage us and for the command that you give us to encourage others who need it. And, and I know that word, encourage, in the New Testament. Lord, you have made that a really broad term, almost the same way that we would say help. It can, so much can be packed into that word. To call alongside somebody. To challenge them. To confront them in love when they're wayward. And when they need to, to be called on to repent. To pray for them. To counsel them. To comfort them when they're sad. And Lord, we're, we're living in a time in America right now where a lot of people are confused and they're angry and they're sad and they're bitter and they're alone and they need encouragement. And God, you have uniquely equipped us and, and sourced us with the encouragement that we need to pass on to them. Help us to be courageous enough and take the risk to do it and, and take them to God and leave them with God. Thank you for these truths. Thank you for the promises we have from God. I pray if anybody in this room this morning has not believed those promises, that Jesus loves them, that he died to save sinners. Jesus is the friend of sinners. He's the best friend we could ever have. He became the most, the most vulnerable on the cross with his arms wide open, naked and open and killable, 
so that we could be received, so that we could be brought back to God and be a part of his family. I pray if anyone doesn't have that hope, doesn't know that hope today, that you would convict them of their sin and they would, they would humbly ask you, Lord, please rescue me from sin and from myself. Come into my heart, Lord. Make me new. Create in me a clean heart. And give me the assurance that, that you love me and that you're going to care for me. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.